Well, join me now and let's turn and continue looking at the future as we go to Matthew 24. And we are going to look in particular at verses, well, originally my plan was to look at verses 15 to 35, uh, but we're not even going to get there. I had four points initially for this sermon I'll talk about in a moment, and we're getting to point one today. Once you hit the abomination of desolation, things just grind to a halt in my study, apparently. So we're going to take this opportunity to slow down a little bit, as in the the Lord's planning in time, as we look to really the end times. And that's what Jesus is talking about. This is the most extended teaching from Jesus about what's going to happen in the end. This is called the Olivet Discourse. And he's preparing the church, he's preparing all of us, and he's preparing even future generations as we anticipate what do you have at the end of the world. Because really that question, how are you supposed to get ready for the end of the world? How do you get ready for the end of the world? You know, our generation, uh, so to speak, had a shot at this, at least with a dress rehearsal, with what was the whole Y2K situation. As the clock struck midnight on January 1st, 2000, the world braced for total computer failure, writes columnist Sal Bono. The fallout shelter was ready, he continued. The batteries were in place. Candles were prepped. Food was stocked. It was a crazy time. Others reported, you had friends who were building safe places for nuclear fallout in their backyards. They were stockpiling rations. They were stockpiling water, another explained. You had grocery stores running out of things, not just toilet paper, but food. You know, we ran through that with COVID. You had runs on ATMs. People were trying to acquire whatever they could. It seemed like it was the end of the world. And yet, it was a false alarm. But no doubt the uncertainty of what was to happen to banks, to power grids, uh, on the whole world, a whole world that's so dependent on computers, it just, rained, it, it just raised up in all of us the alarmist mentality. Just across the whole world. And by the end, in the main, thankfully, it really was nothing at all to be concerned about. But we are right to take some interest, to take some, you might say, alarm, to have a mind toward what will the end bring when it comes. The actual end of the world, as we'll see as we continue through this text, indeed, it's something we need to be attuned to. It's something we need to have our minds on and about. It's something we need to think about, and that will actually impact how we live now as we consider the end, and it's real, and it's coming. But even as the end is real, and we'll see in this text, something about it is very terrible, and in that way terrifying. But as Christians, that is those who trust Christ, those who are loved by God, those who have been chosen by God, those who have been redeemed by Christ, even the prospect of the end and all of the troubles that might come with it, even still we hear in this word, it should not alarm us. Jesus talked about that already in Matthew 24. It should not unsettle us. Rather, even in this storm, the worst storm that the world will see, let alone just the storm and trials of our life, we can rest assured. We don't need to be alarmed because God is still keeping his word. So as we look to the future, don't be alarmed. Rest assured that God will keep every promise of his word, and he's going to do so to the very end. Not one jot or tittle of his word and promise will fall or fail. Every part will come to pass. So the word is to his people, trust his plan. You're looking around, it seems like the world's falling apart, but it's going exactly according to the promise of his word, just as to plan, even when it seems to be breaking apart. 
And that's what we'll see, especially as we turn just in the first sense this morning and looking in Matthew 24. So we're going to see over this week and the next time we pick up Matthew 24, we're going to see over that time four points that encourage us. We don't need to be alarmed. And you don't need to be alarmed if you, in the first place, identify the turning point. If you identify the real turning point of history at the end, you don't need to be alarmed because you know it's all happening just according to plan. And again, there's three more points about why you don't need to be alarmed if you, and we'll save those uh, for a couple weeks. And we're just going to be here looking at Matthew verses 15 to 22. You don't need to be alarmed as you consider the future, even though it's so terrible. Why? Because we know the turning point. We know it's happening just according to plan. That is, if you can identify, if you know what it is, and you can identify that chief event that marks the times of the end, then we don't need to be alarmed because we're, we can know this. God is still in control because it's happening just as he said. And two, we know how his plan unfolds perfectly so. Again, for his people, we don't need to be alarmed. So how will we know then, as we consider the events of what will be the end, how will we know what's that great sign or pointer or indicator, the thing that shows you, it's like the light that's gone off at the end of time that you know, okay, this is the end, this is not a false alarm, this is not a drill, this really is the end of time. What is that event that shows this is the end, all of God's plan is about to come to pass? And so we return to Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 24. And we've seen him, he's describing the signs that what it will be like in the final days. Those final days, right before he returns to earth, he touches down and he judges it all to establish then his rule on the earth for a thousand years. He's been talking about what are the signs and indicators of this. Because remember, this is the longest teaching of Jesus about the time of the end. And it's been prompted by two questions the disciples had asked him. Do you remember that? Look back to verse 3. We saw this last time of Matthew 24. And here's their question. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Jesus privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Again, the disciples, essentially, they're asking two questions. When will the end come? When are you going to bring your rule on earth? When's that going to happen? And then two, the second question is, what are the signs? What are the, the tip-offs, the, the pointers, the markers, the indicators that your end is near, that the end of the world is here? Two questions. When will the end come? And then second, what will be the sign of your coming? And so from verse 4 onward in Matthew 24, he answers their questions. But he does so in the reverse order. That is, he first deals with, well, what are the signs of my coming? What are the signs of the very end? And he picks that up all the way from verses 4 through verse 35. We'll see that this week, and then when we pick up Matthew 24 again, and we'll finish that off. What are the signs of his coming? And then we'll get to pick up in verse 36 with the when question. But now we're just talking about the signs, the tip-offs, the indicator, the dash warning light that you're about to run out of gas. That the, that the end of history is here, what should we be looking for? Now, what he'd seen already, the first signs that Jesus told about when the day of his return's nearing, we looked at last time, he talked about these things called the birth pains. This is the early onset of God's judgment in those final seven years upon the earth, what we call the tribulation. 
And what did we see it's going to look like? It's going to look like deception. There's going to be false messiahs about. There's going to be many deceivers around. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be famines and earthquakes. And then there's going to be intense persecution of God's people. Now, as we reflected and we even applied these events that are going to come in the end, we realize it's kind of tricky. Because all those things I just described, in some way or another, we do experience now. It seems like In the future, that will be experienced to a greater degree. It'll be more pervasive across the world. And yet, what are described as the birth pains from verses 4 to what we saw in verse 14, those are all things that happen in some degree or another now, even if it has a greater intensity later. So the point is, it can make it hard to know what that dash light means on the dashboard of your car that's going to the end of history. Is this a false alarm? Is this the real end? How can we know? Well, now as we turn to verse 15... Jesus gives us that event on which everything turns. You know at this point, if this event happens, this is the end, and it's upon us all. So if those first years, those birth pains, those were like the the early contractions, if we can keep using that illustration, this next event he's going to describe, that's the water breaking. That's when the contractions are going to become harder and far more rapid. When you see this event, it's time to buckle up and get the epidural. You know, I thought I needed an epidural, watching Aaron go through that stuff. That's horrible. I can't imagine this. All right, beside that. So what's this event? What's the sign? What's the turning point of all of history? Let's look at verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So what event is the turning point that he's described here? When you see the abomination of desolation, this event marks the point of no return as you're going down the railroad tracks of history. It's the sign as you're going down those tracks, the bridge is out, go no further, turn back, and you're blowing right through it right to the end, and the drop is coming quick. And what's that sign? The sign is the abomination of desolation you know the end is upon you. Well, what is this? What is the abomination of desolation? Well, it's something that was foretold in God's word before. And Jesus points us to that place where we can actually find the answer. He tells us it comes in the book of Daniel. And so we have to go back in the Old Testament, and we must look at this. So go back in your Bibles, look at Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to spend a significant amount of time here in the text. Jesus points us there. We must look at it. Even the way it reads, there's some debate how to take this. In Matthew 24, when it said, let the reader understand, I understand, and I would submit to you, that's Jesus telling people that. It's not an aside from Matthew. Jesus is telling you, you need to go read Daniel. That's where you'll have answers here. Let the reader understand what Daniel was saying. So what is this abomination of desolation? Well, again, Jesus points us to where you can find the answer. It's in Daniel. So we're here in Daniel chapter 9, and to give you a little backdrop on Daniel, Daniel lived some 500 years before Christ came down to earth, and if you remember, he had quite a troubled childhood, I'd say, uh, as a young man. His home, Judah, was conquered by the Babylonians. Many of his relatives were undoubtedly killed. The temple was destroyed. Daniel was taken captive out of his homeland and exiled to a foreign land, and more than that, he was then made to serve his conquerors, 
He was made to serve the king of his people's conquerors. But even in the midst of all of this tragedy that he walked through in his life, his prayer life and devotion to God's word endured through it all. So there he is in exile, and how does he encourage his soul? He reads the book of Jeremiah. He goes to the promises and prophets of God. And he found in Jeremiah, I believe it's chapter 25, as he foretold that Israel would indeed be taken to exile for 70 years. And so as we turn to chapter 9 here in Daniel, by Daniel's counting now, that 70 years is expired. It's up. It's coming up on its end. So he's expecting, just as God said and foretold through Jeremiah, the, the judgment is about to be over. They're about to return to the promised land. God's about to, to bless and fulfill on his word and bring his people home. And so what did Daniel do in response to reading his word and understanding his times? He prayed. And we see that from Daniel 9, 4 to 19. It's a, it's a beautiful prayer. We don't have time to get into it all. But what does he pray about? He prays about confession. It's a prayer of repentance for himself and for the whole people of Israel. Oh, Lord, we repent. We turn from our sins and our false gods. We've done wrong. Restore us, as you said, after that 70 years. And to Daniel's cry and petition, we then see next the Lord sends an angel, the angel Gabriel, to fill Daniel in on what the future holds for God's people Israel. And it involves this time of 70 weeks or 70 sevens, more literally. And so we look, Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Daniel was praying about Israel, how the chosen people of God, Israel, fit into God's plan. And he hears in response, understand, I know it looks bad now and you've been exiled, but God's not done with his people Israel. He still has a plan of 70 weeks that he's decreed for them and for Jerusalem. Now, as we come to study, we find that these weeks, and you might even see a footnote in your ESV translation, it's just a word for seven. These are really 77s. And what we find is this is 77s of years. Such that just as Israel was exiled out of the land for 70 years, they'll fully be returned and be fully restored after 70 weeks of years. Or that's 70 times 7 years. That is, in this 70 weeks of years, and you do the tabulation, that's 490. God decrees that then six things will happen for his people in Jerusalem. Again, we read on in verse 24. Here are the six events that will take place. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. And what's going to happen? One, to finish the transgression. Two, to put an end to sin. And three, to atone for iniquity. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal both vision and prophet. And six, to anoint a most holy place. So over these 77s, that is these 490 years, God promises that all of these things, these six things will happen. Only then, as the explanation continues, we find out that these things don't happen in just that order, and nor do they happen all at once. And we even see, as Daniel has explained these things, that there's gaps in the timing about how these unfold. But when you tabulate it all, once the 
full 70 weeks are completed, these six events will occur. But now, of course, for Daniel, he's wondering when. That's the question. When? When's this going to happen? When are you going to fulfill and keep all of these final promises? And so we keep reading. Now, as we do read, uh, I'm reading still the English Standard Version, but I'm reading the alternate translation it provides in the footnote. We contend that alternate rendering represents how it should be understood, and I think that's confirmed because most English translations actually take it the way the footnote takes it, and even the ancient Greek translations take it that way as well. The ESV is unique here. And so anyway, I'm going with the traditional translation found there in the footnote. Because you'll see what's the difference. You'll see they group the 70 weeks and the 62 weeks together. You'll see it if you compare, if you're reading along. Which makes a period total of 69 weeks of years. When only some of these things will happen. Let me read, and this is according to the footnote. This is Daniel 9.25. It reads like this. Know therefore... And understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, period. Again, that's how the footnote reads. That's how most English translations read. And then it continues. Period. It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Now, when is this going to happen? When is this seven weeks and 62 weeks? going to take place. How does this unfold? Well, we know two events that capture these. The going out of the word, verse 25, to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. In that period, we should cover 69 weeks, the seven plus the 62. Well, when did the decree come to rebuild Jerusalem? Well, we discover from studying Nehemiah, okay, another book in the Old Testament, of course, Nehemiah chapter 2, that the Persian king Artaxerxes decreed and he employed Nehemiah to do that very thing to rebuild Jerusalem. The king made this decree, we know from other sources, even in history, he made this decree in 444 BC. Okay, buckle up. You got to like turn on the tabulation, you know, mind right now. So 444 BC. And so from that date, we should be able to tabulate from that word to rebuild Jerusalem, tabulate then, counting forward the 69 weeks of years. And then we should land in what verse 25 notes as the coming of an anointed one. Well, what's an anointed one? Even in the Hebrew here, it's the Messiah. It's the Christ. So we should be able to count from 444 BC, count forward the 69 years, and we should land at the time of Jesus, if Jesus is the Messiah, and that's what Daniel's talking about. Now, To understand this, how prophets often counted years was not our 365 days point, whatever that is, but they counted years as 360 days. If you take that and multiply the prophetic year and multiply it by 69 sevens of years, that's 483 prophetic years, you get a total of 173,880 days. And wouldn't you know it, this is astonishing. If Artaxerxes made his decree to rebuild Jerusalem on March 5th of 444 BC, then you add the 173,000 days to that, you arrive precisely at March 30th, AD 33, the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's astonishing. The very date that Jesus comes as king into Jerusalem, though he's rejected, 
That is the very fulfillment of the 69 sevens of years here from Daniel to the very day God predicted it. God's serious about keeping his word, and he can do it down to the very day. But there's more. After the 69 weeks, Daniel then predicts the Messiah's death. Look at verse 26 of Daniel 9. And after the 62 weeks, and so, of course, it's 7 plus 62, so that's after the 69 weeks. Once that completed, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. What's that describing? Jesus' very death. It's right here. Furthermore, not only is that not it, there's more prophecy here. Not only did we see last week where Jesus predicted the temple's destruction, Daniel predicted it here too. Again, after the end of this 69 weeks, verse 26 continues in Daniel 9. And the people of the prince who is to come, hey, this appears to be an evil prince here. This is the one we know as the Antichrist. But it's not about him, it's about his people. It says, the prince's people shall destroy the city and sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So again, we remember from last week, the beginning of Matthew 24, he predicted the temple's destruction. The disciples were like, hey, look at all this building. Look at these amazing edifices. This is incredible. Jesus says not one stone's going to be left upon another. How did he know that was going to happen? Well, he's God. But second, he could have just been reading Daniel. Because it's predicted right here. And indeed, the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Again, just as not only Jesus, but Daniel predicted. But note this, and it's curious. There in verse 26, when the angel says that these things will happen after the 62nd week. Or you could say after the 69th week. But he doesn't say this happens at the beginning of the 70th week. We haven't heard about the last seven yet. These things happen between the 69th, apparently, and when the 70th starts. There seems to be some kind of gap. Well, where is the last seven years? Where is the last seven? Well, we keep reading. Daniel 9, verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Oh, here it is. Here's the last week. We've been through 69. We got one left. One week of years. And for half of the week or half of the seven, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of, or the ancient translations here read temple, or in the temple, abominations shall come by one who makes desolate. Well, okay, here it is, right? We finally reached what Jesus was talking about in Daniel 9. He was talking about this abomination of desolation. And it takes place in this last seven week of years, so to speak. This last seven years. Well, who is the one doing these things, this abomination of desolation? Well, it's the he that begins verse 27, but who is that? Well, working back, who was the, the most recent he we'd been talking about? It was there in verse 26. How is this prince, this coming Antichrist, putting this together? He's going to come. He's going to make a firm covenant then with many during that last week, that last final seven years. And midway, it says, in the middle of that week, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And then Daniel says, let the reader understand, if I could be quoting Jesus back, on the wing or in the temple, 
abominations shall come by one who makes desolate. And so here, here it is again, that abomination of desolation. Now, what is that very event, though, that the Antichrist is going to do? And it seems in the middle of this last seven years. Well, we get some hints from Daniel. So he talks about it in Daniel 11 and then on in, in Daniel 12. We don't have time to look at that. Let's skip to a more clear reference. Let's look down to 2 Thessalonians. So now we're back in the New Testament, flipping around here. Because the Apostle Paul talks about this very event. And we'll see some parallels here. This is 2 Thessalonians. We're going to look at chapter 2. Paul speaks about this very event referencing the Antichrist. And we'll return to this passage, but let's look at this just now. We read, looking mainly at verse 4, but you can back it up and just see at the end of verse 3 that he is talking about the Antichrist here. He's talking about the man of lawlessness being revealed, the son of destruction, who in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is the very abomination of desolation. This is the abominable event indeed that desolates and desecrates the temple as the Antichrist comes into it and proclaims he should be worshipped. That he is the Savior, he is the Redeemer, the world should look to him. And notice, here in 2 Thessalonians, we have the temple or a holy place involved. Just as Jesus mentioned in Matthew 24 and mentioned by Daniel as well, they all describe the same sacrilegious event taking place in the center of the worship of God on earth. This is the event where everything turns of those last seven years. Daniel says it's going to occur right in the middle of that last week of years. When the Antichrist, the evil ruler to come, enters what's apparently a rebuilt temple, he defiles it and desecrates it by demanding he be worshipped as God in the place of Christ. It is the epitome of idolatry and evil. And then to go back to Daniel 9, to finish off the prophecy... Once that happens, then the end will come. Let's see that back in Daniel 9 here. That last verse, 27. This happens until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. He's going to do this horrible thing, but then the end will come upon him, and that'll be the end of the age. This is the beginning of the end. Again, the event in that final week of years where everything turns. So we've seen Daniel. Let's go back then to Matthew 24. And all of this in mind, let's see again what Jesus is talking about as these final events in history. So we return back to Matthew 24. Let's pick it up back in verse 15. And let's run out with Jesus to see these events of this turning point in history. Matthew 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. Then let the reader understand. Again, the Antichrist invades the temple. He defiles it. And then what's going to happen? Well, that's what he's going to continue saying. But I just want you to note something. As he references and says, let the reader understand, as Jesus says this, he's telling you, Jesus expects himself that the future is going to play out in just the very way God said. And you might say it then literally. 
These aren't spiritualized. This isn't figurative. We can count up the very days. It's astonishing. Let the reader understand. It's going to happen just as he said. So when believers, you can expect there will be believers in those days, you will see this event. What should you then do? That's what Jesus is going to tell us next. And in short, what is he going to tell you to do if you see this happen? you got to run. It's getting bad. Verses 16. When you see this happen, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. When you see this happen, don't go back and get your laptop. It's like what they tell you on an airplane. If you've got to evacuate, don't take your luggage with you. you know, your life's more important than whatever is on your laptop. In the same way, you see this happen, it's time to get out of Dodge, or literally get out of Jerusalem, if you're in Judea. Verse 19, and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. It's time to run for your life when you see this, and hopefully you can make a good exit. That's what's going to be so hard for those that are taking care of children in those times. Pray to the Lord that when you have to run, the conditions are good. Look at verse 20. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Note that with the word Sabbath. This is very Jewish sounding, isn't it? We've been talking about when this takes place for those who are in Judea and pray that this won't happen on the Sabbath, i.e., that is, when you're not prepared to travel. You haven't made such preparations. You're not ready to go on the run. Why does all of this sound so Jewish? Let the reader understand. Go back to Daniel. How did Daniel begin that talk about his 70 weeks? It says, Daniel 9.24, again, speaking to Daniel, who was very Jewish, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, Daniel. God fulfilled then the first part of the 69 weeks to a T. And that leaves one week left. One period of seven years remains when God picks up again his plan where he targets and deals with Israel. If you have more questions about that, go read Romans chapters 9 through 11. It's all about God's not done with this people Israel. Because what's the point as you read from Romans 8 to Romans then 9 to 11? Romans 8 ends with that glorious word. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Because we're chosen in God. And he showered his love on us in the Messiah. And then the but would be, well, what about his people Israel? If he can reject his people Israel, can he reject us? Well, understand, he hasn't finally rejected his people. He still has a plan for them. And it's going to be engaged in this last week from Daniel. But when it does happen in that final week, this is the time of the judgment of God upon the earth, and it's going to get a little hectic. I'll say. At that time, what's going to go on? The world's going to undergo a judgment and a trial that this world has never before seen and never will. Look at verse 21 now, back to Matthew 24. For then there will be great tribulation, affliction, difficulty, such as not been seen from the beginning of the world till now and never will be. And that's why I can't stand with many other commentators who, who want to say this is all just describing the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That doesn't fit with his language here. Jesus says this is something that's never been seen and never will be seen on earth. It's unparalleled. And yet, even for this, even for how horrible this will be, for those dear believers who do have to live through this, it's all going to end. The, the trouble won't last forever. 
God's going to put an end to it. He's still in control of it. Look at verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. It has an end. It's all in God's control and it's in his hands. Such that as he's told us all beforehand, and now multiple times we've seen, especially in Daniel, and here with Jesus himself, God's still in control. That's his plan. And so even these greatest of horrors on earth, they all have a limit. They all have a line they can't cross in time and history and effect. They have a clock. They have a timer. They have a terminus point. And God will order it to its very moment precisely for the good of his people. That's what we see here. In other words, even these greatest of horrors will not be the end. They will not be the last word. What's going to be the last word? Salvation is. Rescue will be the last word. Again, verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. They're cut short for their salvation, their preservation, their rescue. And why? Because God's looking out for his people. Why? Because God's still in control. It's all happening by his timetable. It looks like the world is just flying apart, but it's all in the ordered hands of this God. He knows when precisely to end it for the good of his people. He knows when to turn it off because he's looking out for us. He's looking out for his people. He will do whatever he can to make sure his people persevere. And that's an encouragement for any Christian living at any time in history, not only for those who have to endure these darkest final days. That is for you, if you're in Christ, your trial, whatever is your test, whatever affliction you're having to walk through, it all has an end. And more than that, not only is it going to end, but there's a glorious future on the other side. Its days are numbered, and then glory for an unnumbered days comes after in the end. That's why there's these exhortations for us throughout the New Testament to have hope. Even as we go through various trials, we have all kinds of reason for joy. So, for example, recall the opening of 1 Peter where the apostle, he, he begins to these Christians who are under some form of persecution, he begins by recounting for them how great their salvation is and how secure it is, how secure and, and unfading is this future inheritance. Why? Because it all rests with Christ for them. It rests on his power of life. That they are those, First Peter 1 verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. It, it's in God's hands. He's, he's protecting us through to the very end. And so Peter then tells us that future salvation that's promised by God, it's protected for us by God, it's sure for us because of God. That future salvation then colors the way we look at our trials right now. It changes the way we see them. It changes the way we see our difficulties now. Because what is the point? The point is that none of those trials or difficulties can upend or change or turn over God's gracious plan. Namely to redeem and to save and to deliver and rescue. Even if it takes a resurrection. Peter continues about that future salvation. This is verse 6. In this you rejoice, that salvation. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So we can be sure that whatever difficulty or trial we've got to walk through in this broken, sin-stained world, it's going to end. He calls it a little while. 
And by look of eternity, it is. Now, that grief that you go through in that trial, that's real. That pain, oh, it's real. That hasn't changed. The hardship and darkness, oh, it's real. I don't need to tell you that. But that's not the end. That's not the terminus. Salvation is. An eternal, unfading, abiding inheritance of salvation. That's the last word that God writes over history for his people in Christ. And in that way, with whatever difficulty and trials we encounter, we need not be alarmed, not in the least. Now, that's doubly sure for us now, the church now, as we've been looking ahead to the future at this horrible event of the great tribulation. We need not be alarmed or spooked or scared about it. Why? Because if you do know the sign, the defining sign of the end times, if you know the sign of this great affliction, you don't need to be alarmed. Why? Because we're not in those days. We're not in that last seven years. We haven't seen this. Well, how can you be sure that we're not in them? Because we haven't seen the abomination of desolation. That's how we can be sure. So let us not be worried or troubled or duped then about the future as if we might miss God's plan or he's going to fail on his plan. He won't. Now, admittedly, that's a temptation for us to think, to start to doubt the surety of his word or to think we've missed something, especially something about the future. But that temptation is not new for us and it's been for Christians for a long time. Again, return with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We find here Paul coming to encourage A bunch of believers who were worried about the future. They were worried about what was going to happen or what was about to happen to them. And again, we find Paul assuring the Thessalonian church, it's okay. You don't need to be alarmed. And namely, his rationale is you haven't missed it. You haven't missed what we know to be, and we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, the rapture, the gathering the church off of the earth back to Jesus in heaven. You haven't missed the rescue, and so that means you haven't entered into this trial of tribulation that we've seen described in Matthew 24 and Daniel 9. And so let's see that here. Let's look at Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So they were being shaken as they thought about the future. Because they heard this rumor, not that the day of the Lord is coming, but that it's already here. And to be clear, in this day of the Lord, what he's talking about, it's that entire week of Daniel, that last week. This is the the seven-year tribulation. This is the, the whole period of seven years where God's coming to judge the earth, which then culminates, though, with the joyful return of Jesus to earth when he rescues his people and he destroys the Antichrist. But it's going to be terrible during that seven years. We can see why they'd be alarmed if thinking they'd missed the exit and they were going to have to go through that. But Paul reassures them, you haven't missed it. And so he points them to the truth. Look at verse 3 then. You don't need to be alarmed. You didn't miss the day of the Lord. So he says in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, and it reads, will not come. I contend we better translated, that day has not come or is not come. Unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, again, the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Again, the abomination desolation event. 
Now, verse 3 in particular, that's a difficult verse to interpret. It's a difficult verse and challenging verse to translate. Why is it hard to translate? Well, let me put it very literally for you, okay? You ready? Verse 3, follow along in your Bible. Here it goes. Let no one deceive you in any way because dot, 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 unless the apostasy first comes and then the man of lawlessness be revealed. That's how it literally reads. There is no phrase, quote, for the day of the Lord will not come. That's not there. It's not in the original language. Why not? Because the original language doesn't need it to make sense. In English, we need it to make sense. So you have to supply that phrase, something about the day of the Lord. And you supply it from the context of verse 2. Now, the ESV translators and many others have understood, well, that's going to be a future thing. The day of the Lord will not come. But let me ask you, this is a grammar nerd question, what tense, what time are we really worried about? Why would they be alarmed? Are we worried about a future thing, a present thing, or a past thing? What has got them so out of shape about talking about the day of the Lord here? The question, they wouldn't be worried about the truth, the day of the Lord is coming. They knew that. We all know that the Lord's coming. Why would they be alarmed about that in a unique way? They're not. What's their concern? That the day of the Lord has already come and they're in it now. Namely, that the judgment's coming upon them. That they missed the rapture, the rescue, and they're going to have to endure the time of judgment on earth, the worst one ever, the great tribulation. And so instead of the day of the Lord will come, one translation, the Legacy Bible, would you imagine that, renders it better this way. Let no one in any way deceive you, for the day of the Lord has not come, has not come, or again, you could say is not come, unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So again, what's Paul saying? And this ties back to Matthew 24, so I want to tie it all together. He assures the Thessalonians that you haven't entered the day of the judgment of the Lord. You haven't entered into those seven terrible years. Why? Because he says, look around. The two chief events that will mark and distinguish those last seven years, they're nowhere in sight. What two events is he talking about? The great rebellion or apostasy. And that event's going to come before the next one, which is the man of lawlessness is revealed. When the Antichrist shows himself the abomination of desolation. So here's the connection. In the same way Jesus refers to the Antichrists, the man of lawlessness, abomination of desolation, just as Jesus points to that event to say that's going to define the end times, Paul does the very same thing. And he uses it as an encouragement. They both point to the same person and event as the key mark that marks that last seven years on earth when God's judgment is coming. And so again, in the same way, but in a different kind of a way, if you can identify the turning point, if you can identify the defining feature of the tribulation, you have no need to be alarmed. In the first place, for us in the church, you don't need to be alarmed because we haven't seen it, it hasn't happened, and we're not going to see it because we're going to get rescued out of here. But even for the believers that have to undergo those horrible days, even if they would see it, we can rest assured. That means evil's days are numbered. They're near its end. God's still in control, even though this is going to be painful. But Christ is coming soon then. When you see that, to vanquish all evil, evil will not have the last word. So even looking here in 2 Thessalonians, how do we live now in view of the future, in view of these coming events? I just want to point out two responses or mentalities that should govern the Christian's walk as we walk by faith to the future. Look it down to verse 13 and 14 of Thessalonians 2. 
We should walk this life through trials and tribulations, whatever they are, but we can walk this life with gratitude, with constant thankfulness because of our eternal hope in Christ. We read this from Paul. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, on whatever other side of trials and tears and hardship you're walking through, eternal glory awaits in Christ. A glory that's described as beyond all comparison. A glory of being loved by God forever. A glory of being called by God, adopted, loved, forgiven, my beloved, being called righteous, accepted, you're my redeemed. Forever in his presence, that's what awaits on the other side of this veil of tears. And that's all because of Christ. The glory in seeing and worshiping this one who came for you. He chose you. He died for you. He rose for you. He came to see that you would love him and see him face to face. That's why he did all this. Even as you walk through this trail of tears. That is a glory. A joyful glory won by the cross. It's this prize that he gives you. And he gives it to us now in a foretaste that it carries us all the way to the end. We can always be thankful whatever the trial is. But second, looking out at verse 15, we can only walk this road with thankfulness and joy to the degree we cling to his word and his promises. You can only have that gratitude as you get focused on the cross and you're focused on his word, you're focused on the promises to tell you what's true and what's truly going to happen. Verse 15, so then brothers, Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either spoken by our word or by our letter. I'm holding the New Testament. That's what we're talking about here. We hold fast to this word. We bind our hearts and our minds to this apostolic word we have here in the New Testament because there's promises yet to pass. There's a glory that awaits, and he's going to fulfill every word that he has said. We've seen it. He's done it before. He's going to do it again. As we reflect on what God's doing in history, say toward his people Israel, and see with the coming of Jesus the first time, not one word has failed, and not one will, and not one word will fail for any that trust in his Son. He will finish what he has begun. He will fulfill all the promises of God, just as he said, even one day, ending all evil. Which leads us to that glorious benediction then. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God of our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in good work and word, because he will finish what he's begun. He will keep every promise of his word. Let's thank him for that. Let's pray together. Indeed, O Christ, we marvel that not only are you faithful to keep your word, but you're able to show us mercy in it all. We rejoice that even as we look to that coming day when you come, that we can look with hope. We can, as Luke says, even have our eyes lifted up in anticipation because you're going to show mercy to all those who are in your son. And we proclaim we have no hope of ourselves. We have no hope of being righteous enough or heavenly minded enough or obedient enough. Our only hope is that Jesus died for sinners like us and he rose from the dead. And that's why we have hope when we can see you face to face. 
May we, as your church, those bought by your blood, have that hope before us that we purify ourselves as you are pure, looking to the day when we will see you in your pure holiness and grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.